Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. Welcome to the BIOS Podcast. Today, we are absolutely thrilled to welcome David Weitz, professor and core faculty at Harvard and the Wies Institute. David, thank you once again for joining us. Happy to be with you. To help host this episode, I'm joined by my colleague, Drew Sharp. Let's kick things off. Dave, can you rewind the clock and please share your background and provide a brief career overview? Sure. I was educated first in Canada, where I come from, and then came to Harvard as a graduate student a long time ago, where I studied superconductivity, studied condensed matter physics. Uh, so I'm a physicist. Then I went and worked at uh, Exxon Research and Engineering Company. It was before Exxon was ExxonMobil, and it was the glory days of industrial research in the United States. So it was a very academic style of industrial research. I worked there for 18 years. Then I moved to the University of Pennsylvania for a few years, and I came to Harvard. I always say at the end of the last millennium, that's in 1999, and I've been here ever since. At Harvard, I run a... Uh, fairly large group. We're a physics group, but we do a lot of different topics and a lot of biotech. And we're excited to dive in. As you mentioned, you've explored a number of spaces throughout the course of your career. So to help our audience get a grasp of these many perspectives, we'd love to learn more about your North Star, the common thread, if you will, that has tied your work together. Yeah, I guess for me, what I want to do is have an impact. I want to do the work that I can do that has the most impact. And by that, I mean, I really want to do work that has scientific impact. So the scientific impact that I like is impact where I can change a field. I can introduce a new field. I can start something that a lot of other people follow on or do things with. And I like to have a broader impact for societal, societal impact, bringing better health to a lot of people or doing things that will make a difference to the world. And for that, I believe I can only do that if it's self-sustainable. And it can only be sustainable if it's uh, done for profit and as a company that's doing it. I can't do that kind of work in a research lab in a university. But the thing that combines both of them is trying to have as much impact as I can, trying to do as much things that will make a difference to the world. And to start talking about that impact, let's dive deeper into microfluidics and soft materials. Drew, take it away. Thanks so much, Chris. And thanks again, David for joining us. We are so excited to host you and kick things off here. So really diving in here to to start, David, as a pioneer in microfluidics, we'd love to more deeply understand the field and, and how it's progressed from someone on the inside like yourself, revolutionizing science as we know it. Can you tell us more about the storied history of microfluidics? Maybe just starting with where did the field start and when? Sure. It started really long before I got involved. And probably at the end of the last millennium, in the 1990s thereabouts, maybe a little earlier, uh, when people started to realize that uh, what you can do with essentially the same technology that is used to make silicon microchips, but this is technology of the 70s and 80s, where you made things at a much larger scale, you could do the same thing. You could make circuits that control fluids. And my perception of the field is that it was all done with a silicon 
either with the standard silicon or with glass. And that meant that it would take, uh, just as you would send a chip to a fab and you, you might get it back a couple of months later, to make a chip with glass, it takes many weeks to go to a clean room and do everything. It's, it's, it's not the same high-tech stuff that the uh, silicon microchips have moved to and had moved to at the time, but still, it's a very tedious and long procedure. And then my colleague, George Whitesides, recognized that you could do this in a much simpler way using what he called soft lithography. And what that meant was you, you made a mold of the kind of chip that you want, and then you just cast it in silicon rubber, PDMS. And uh, you could pour the PDMS on, you could cure it, you could peel it off, and then you put a cover on, and you have a chip that works almost as well, not quite as well as the glass chips, but is much, much easier to fabricate. Instead of taking two weeks to two months to make it, it takes two hours to two days to make it. And that turned out to be incredibly important, as George recognized it would, because it made it possible to make chips easily. Everybody could do it. It democratized the uh, use of chips. Everybody could do it fairly easily. And it led to this explosion of interest in uh, microfluidics and people trying to do things, all sorts of things. In the early days before, before a PDMS, there were a few companies that tried to commercialize things. The advantage that people saw this right away was that you could do everything at a small scale. Maybe it, it was more successful to do a millifluidic, sort of millimeter size scale. And, and there are certainly still manufacturing processes that use that to, to do chemistry, to do all sorts of things. The micron scale was a little more difficult, but people really recognized that it could lead to tremendous advances. It started fairly slowly in terms of the impact on technology. I think then, to me, well, there were already a few important innovations of companies that came from that. Uh, one of the true leaders uh, in commercialization of things is uh, somebody named Steve Quake. He currently heads the uh, Chan Zuckerberg Chan, yeah, Chan Zuckerberg Center in San Francisco. He's a brilliant person, done a lot of really innovative work, has been involved in a lot of the early things. And he made a lot of innovations with the PDMS material, and he started a company called Fluidime, which was one of the very important first companies in, in a PDMS-based microfluidics. Again, there were limitations to that. PDMS is not scalable, so they, would, uh, they created a fab line in Singapore, and you know they would sell their chips for $800. Nevertheless, he made tremendous innovations. They became very important. They introduced a lot of new technologies, for example, one of which was just how to sequence single cells. Uh, they had the first single cell sequencer. Not to actually do the sequencing, it's still done with Illumina or some sequencing operation, but it's uh, how to prepare the sample. At any rate, they did a lot of innovations. And then for us, the way we got into it is Steve uh, did some work with drops of one fluid and another. We perhaps had more experience just because I was experienced with making emulsions. I was experienced with making drops of one fluid and another. We started to do uh, drop-based microfluidics and really pushed that a long way. And the advantage of that is that it's like if you, you can think of your uh, a microfluidic chip as a, like a little laboratory. And uh, one thing is you have to do in a laboratory. It's the tools of a laboratory. One thing you might want to do in a laboratory is pipette things. And so if you pipette something, what you always do when you pipette is when you've done pipetting it, you throw away the tip and you take a new tip because it's too damn hard to clean it. Well, 
most microfluidic chips, you'd have to do the same thing. If you have fluids flowing through, you'd have to wash them and put different fluids through it, and you have to always clean it. The advantage of doing it in a drop is that the fluids, the fluidics, what controls the flow of the fluids is some inert fluid, some inert oil in most cases. And the experiment is done in a drop, and it just sits in the middle, and we know how to stabilize one drop in a, a separate fluid. So you can do the experiment in this very small drop, and you can do everything else. All the fluidics are controlled by the, the, this inert oil. So this turned out to be a very convenient way to do small-scale experiments. And I can give you an example of why this is important. Uh, it's a simple, simple idea, and that is that it's more, normally if you want to do lots and lots of experiments, you buy a robot. And uh, a typical oh, two-generation-ago robot might have a plate of 384 experiments. It's 384 wells. And you have a machine that a robot just pipe, pipettes uh, different fluids in and mixes them and detects them and things like that. And in each well, you might have, say, 10 to 100 microliters of fluid. One microliter is how much you can pipette easily. And 10 microliters is typically what you use, 10 to 100. Let's just say it was 10 microliters. Well, very often now in biology and in biotech, you want to do lots and lots of experiments. So a prototypic number, let's just say you want to do a big drug screen, you could easily want to do a million experiments. Well, if you did a million experiments and you had 10 microliters for each experiment, that would be a total amount of reagent of 10 liters. And reagent is very expensive. 10 liters of reagent is exceptionally expensive. And things that actually stop these high-throughput screens are the cost of the reagent. Now, if you do it in the, in the droplets, a typical droplet volume is about a picoliter, 10 to the minus 12 liters. That's six orders of magnitude less than a microliter. So if I do a million experiments with a picoliter, the total amount of fluid for all those experiments would be one microliter, less than a single well of experiments in doing a million experiments with a typical robot. So the savings are enormous. And that's really, that's the, the core of why this becomes interesting and important, is that you can do large number of experiments with very little reagent. And that's, I think, where we've focused a lot of what we've done. I've seen a lot of other people do a lot of the commercial Microfluidics companies use some kind of drop-based uh, microfluidics. It sort of put the old style of PDMS and the, the big PDMS devices that Fluidime used, it sort of made them a little bit obsolete. Dude, that was a fantastic overview of some of those early challenges, the critical advances, and in particular, how your work around drop-based really just catalyzed the development of this field. It's amazing to hear from your own perspective. To add on top of this conversation, to add another layer here, I'd be really curious as we're level setting, from your own perspective, what have been some of the greatest scientific accomplishments we've had to date that have been enabled by microfluidics and this amazing cost savings and efficiency gains that have been enabled by microfluidics? Well, you know, something I'm very familiar with is single cell sequencing. As I told you, this was introduced by Fluidime, and that was exceptionally important people began to realize how important it is to study the heterogeneity of what happens in, in cells. Now, when I say single cell sequencing, I'm really talking about sequencing the RNA. And this is 
Uh, RNA sequencing, in fact, was something that replaced another technology, these gene chips, they were called, which was done by Athometrics. That was a very, very popular technology in the early part of this uh, millennium, in the early part of the, around 2000. It was extremely important where people could look at the expression of mRNA in cells to try to understand something about what the state of the cell is. And people started to realize that cells don't behave all the same way. There's differences between them. So you'd like to be able to separate out what each individual cell does. And so you do that either with the gene chip, but there's just not enough sensitivity, or you do it with sequencing. Again, it was very difficult to do because of lack of sensitivity, just sequencing the RNA until people learned how to do it on a single cell basis. But then since you're doing it one cell at a time, you really need to have statistics. So you need a lot of cells. And it was easy. It was possible to do, say, 50 cells with the fluidime chip. But once you go to the drop-based technology, now you can do thousands to tens of thousands of cells. And I think there'll be uh, new developments will, which will get you to even larger numbers of cells. You're limited now only by the sequencing throughput. And so we played a role in, in some of that work. That's why I know it so well. It's now commercialized by a number of different companies. Uh, 10X is the biggest one, but that's made a big difference. I see uh, new kinds of technologies coming uh, where people are starting to do different types of experiments in drops. I, I fully expect there to be more diagnostics done in drops. So PCR uh, can be done in, in microfluidics uh, with digital PCR. That makes it much more sensitive. And I see a lot of diagnostics uh, coming. I personally think that we're on the cusp of a really big boom. I see a lot of companies that are starting to develop things and more and more will be occurring in the next in the near future. So that's just for diagnostics, for example. Another important application is for therapeutics, for uh, drug discovery. That's also very important and very valuable because, you know, one of the things that you really want to be able to do is screen very deeply. So you need to do lots and lots of experiments. And again, miniaturizing things to go to much higher throughput using microfluidics is enabling a lot of new important technologies that will become really valuable for therapeutic discovery. I appreciate the glimpse into the crystal ball, if you will, a uh, look in the future from your perspective, David. And I, I wanted to probe that a little further as we're discussing the future applications within therapeutics and diagnostics. That You've really been a, a driving force developing microfluidic platforms, enabling a wide variety of applications across therapeutic and diagnostic areas. And, and looking forward, I'd be really curious, David, how do you envision the advancement of microfluidics will really shape the future of human health in the next few years, if not the next decades? Yeah, well, I think that there are still, we're still in the early stages of the things that microfluidics can do. I believe that strongly because I'm still working on trying to develop new technologies for diagnostics and for therapeutics. I really see these are very, very important applications. And I really hope to see from my own lab new technologies. And I'm sure other people have even more and better ideas than I do in the community. So I see uh, we're still in the early stages. This is all so new that things haven't yet been fully approved by the FDA. That always takes time. I see a lot of companies that are 
developing new kinds of diagnostic probes. They have to be, the, the beauty of them is they'll be simpler, cheaper, easier to use, more widespread. So I see that for, for high-end diagnostics where you go to hospitals and you do tests. I see that for screening. I think that microfluorics will ultimately play a really big role in screening. And I see more and more public health screening applications. We're just developing new ways of uh, understanding the technology, the biology to do this high throughput screening. A lot of that's done with sequencing, but sequencing is just still too expensive and not scalable enough. And I think there'll be ways that use microfluidics that will make it much less expensive, more widespread, much easier to afford, and will bring it to the whole world rather than just uh, the fairly wealthy people. I also see a lot of effort now in developing new therapeutics and the we keep discovering new ways of developing the drugs and microfluidics is just a tool that makes it possible to do. So it's not it's not the essential tool but it's something that's enabling. And then I think the last thing is that what the pandemic has taught us I think is that uh you know, these mRNA and uh, CRISPR or these gene therapies, they actually will work. But the key is to protect them and to deliver them. And so you need to, like these lipid nanoparticles that are so essential for the vaccines, they're made essentially with the microfluidics technology. It's large scale, but it's essentially something that can be done in microfluidics and is often done in microfluidics. And I see new applications of that sort becoming possible. And the microfluidics will both enabling enable distributed manufacturing and new types of structures to be made um, and should broaden the application for drug delivery as well. Thanks, David. And, and as you clarified, while, while microfluidics is just a tool, the applications that it will enable in the future and hearing it from your perspective, the impact can and, and hopefully will be significant. Something I wanted to hone in on is a specific question as well. You, you mentioned in your response, your, your discussion around sequencing currently in our, in our current state, our current economy, just being too expensive and not available enough to current markets. To probe that question a little further, are there any other capabilities we'll first need to develop for microfluidics to truly be realized as a fully enabled vision? What challenges do we still face in the field today? First of all, sequencing is 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 expensive, but it's an it's amazing technology. It's a fabulous technology. Don't get me wrong. Of course, it's it's never you're never going to lose the importance of sequencing, and there's going to be new ways of sequencing. But it's used basically right now. It's used as a way you get so much data that you can detect huge amounts of things. And so even if you see just a few sequences, there's so much data there that you can you can see things. But it's really not the ideal technology for something that's really sensitive, that's super sensitive, that you really want to detect small amounts. There are other ways of doing that. They're just limited because you can't get enough data. But I think that with microfluidics, and now I'm sort of a little biased by, because of the things that we're working on, I think you may be able to uh, get some of the advantages of other technologies, not to really rival sequencing, but to give you enough information that you can do many things, but not everything, but many things that sequencing is used for in a screening sense, you can do it with other technologies use it, taking advantage of microfluidics. That's just a prediction I have. But you asked really what the, the limitations are. 
or what the, what the pain points are, if you will, uh, for further application of uh, microfluidics. And I think really it's still something that you need some expertise in your lab to do. So I'm a physicist. I run a lab that's filled with uh, a biotech people, but we have this engineering and physics uh, expertise as well. And so for us, it's very easy. But I can also understand that for a lot of people who are really creative in the applications that microfluidics could be used for, it's still too complicated. And so it would be nice to see some simplicity, some easier to use ways of doing things, some easier to make uh, doing things. Soft lithography has been really a marvel. It's been a tremendous advance, extremely important. All credit to George uh, for doing that. But, you know, it's got limitations. It's still, you know, you still need a certain degree of expertise. And it's not ideal for many situations because you need it, it's not very friendly to different solvents other than water. So there's still a lot of room for improvement in the technology to, if you will, democratize it, to make it more accessible to less expert people so that they can use their creative efforts on things other than the devices, the tools, and find better solutions. Oh, oh of course. And I, I'm super happy you, you pointed the conversation in this direction, David, I really wanted to add this section away from microfluidics for a second to talk more about your work in soft materials. And so really, I mean, in addition to your contributions in advancing microfluidics, you've also focused your lab on soft materials making almost quote unquote designer emulsions and foams on a drop by drop basis, fabricating multiple emulsions with unpre unprecedented precision. Could you discuss some of the potential applications of these soft materials and maybe continue down uh, the, the conversation that, that we were just having before? Sure. So, you know, this is a sort of another passion of mine. And in fact, it's what uh, got me into microfluidics is that I've been studying emulsions for even longer than microfluidics. Emulsions are just drops of one fluid and another fluid, and they're great for many different things. They're they're wonderful to eat. Uh, mayonnaise is a, is a beautiful emulsion. Aioli is, a, is an amazing emulsion. You know, it's two fluids that mix together to form a solid. Uh, mayonnaise is essentially a solid. You can make a point out of mayonnaise and it just stays there. It flows eventually, but it's really a solid. And it's just two fluids mixed together. So they're an amazing material. They're a way of encapsulating one type of material in another. So we, we wanted to, we, 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 I remember... Early on in the days that we were working with droplet microfluidics, one of my very great colleagues, a really good friend, colleague, uh, was supported to do droplet microfluidics also by one of the big home and personal care and food companies. And they wanted to know, could they make materials out of this? And they worked for about three years and they decided that since you're doing drop by drop, you would never be able to scale it to a commercial scale. So when I saw that, I said, well, look, I'm a materials person as well. And it seems like a good challenge. Could we scale it to a commercial scale? So we tried to do that, but you want to find something of high value. Uh, so obviously the highest value is, is drug delivery or something like that, making drug delivery carriers. But that takes a long time to prove that you can, or to bring it to market. I mean, the only way to prove that you can do it to scale is to commercialize it. So we did the thing that people will pay a lot of money for, for emulsions, but that doesn't have quite the same clearance hurdle as going through the FDA, and that's the cosmetics. So we started a little cosmetics company called Capson, and uh, Capson became very successful. In fact, they still exist. I'm no longer part of them, but they make all kinds of cosmetics 
based on microfluidics. In fact, there's a, an ad by one of the companies, uh, Chanel, that uses a product made by Capsule. It was an ad uh, five years ago when they introduced it, saying that this is a product based on microfluidics. And it really is. It's a product that Capsum now makes something like over a ton a day of material, and it's drop by drop by drop. So it can be scaled, and it makes these beautiful cosmetics products. Chanel bought the company, bought Capsum. They just put together a, a, a new factory in Austin, Texas, right across from the gigafactory of Tesla. So there's uh, you know modern cars and modern cosmetics. And, and we've since done a lot of other materials, basically using uh, microfluidic concepts, making materials. So it can be done. More recently, we've become very interested in going back to this issue of these lipid nanoparticles and equivalent things, something back in drug delivery, because now there's really this strong recognition of how important that is. And again, I see microfluidics where you can make these designer structures, these designer fluidic structures, where you can control everything with such precision, with such exacting control, I see that as a way, perhaps, of uh, improving on the lipid nanoparticle delivery system, maybe making them more flexible, making them possible to deliver to different parts of the body. It can be done for the vaccines. It's done in the muscle. It's done. It's very good for, for treating the liver because uh, lipids uh, are uh, taken up by the liver. But many other areas of the body, it's very difficult to deliver to. And we're trying to now look at using this sort of materials base to make use microfluidics to make things on a very small scale for drug delivery. And again, the vaccine showed us that you can scale it. It was scaled with something like microfluidics, but not exactly microfluidics. And you can, you certainly can use tremendous flexibility and, uh, you know, if you think about uh, vaccines, well, hopefully, I really hope we're not going to be in a position where we have to vaccinate every person on, on the planet two or three times, but more likely it'll be vaccine safer or it'll be drugs for curing cancer or for curing specific diseases where you need a much smaller number. And why not then have a distributed manufacturing model where you use small chips to manufacture the vaccine, but you do it just on site, just when you're ready for the vaccine. So never mind storing it at minus 80 for months at a time. Just make as make it as it's needed, something like that. So I don't know. These are just sort of some of the things that I think about, some of the impacts that I think that we can have. And this is where our ability to, to make these structures comes not just from understanding the microfluidics, but also from understanding the soft matter, understanding how materials mix, control the mixing, how they self-assemble, the nature of the material, all that sort of thing really sort of combines what we know about soft matter with some applications, again, back in biotech. Of course, and it's amazing to hear more about how these new soft materials are enabling new industries or areas of focus within life sciences, potentially in the near future. Thanks again for that insight, David. I wanted to pass this over to Chris for a quick halftime series of rapid fire questions to, to dive deeper into your work. Chris, you want to take it away? Thank you, Drew. And thank you, Dave. To kick things off and maybe expand the conversation, given your background as a physicist, especially, we wanted to ask, what do you believe, like in physics, is the grand unifying theory of biology? Uh, okay. So, you know, I, I'm a physicist in the end. I'm not a biologist. 
But I also believe that uh, biology is the science of the 21st century, not physics. Physics was the science of the 20th century. And so as a physicist, the, the thing that I've seen, to me, the, the, the beauty of physics is that you have these unifying concepts. You have these relatively simple concepts through which we can understand everything else. Just understanding the basic concepts allows us to really understand everything. We don't have to know the details. We know the general concept. Biology, by contrast, is really a science of detail. You have to know every single detail. So my dream as a physicist is to see biology develop these grand unifying concepts that really explain things in a much more conceptual way so that there is actually a theory behind what we're doing, not just a collection of facts. If that, I don't know if that's possible, but that's what I would like to see. And hopefully with the microfluidics work that you're pioneering, we'll be able to generate some of those data and inform the testing of hypotheses around some of those theories. So excited to see the same. Recently, we hosted a roundtable on innovation institutes that included executive directors from the VIS, the IGI, IPD, and ARC to discuss the future of translational science. And in 2016, you were appointed core faculty of the VIS. As someone who's been involved firsthand from the earliest days with one of the leading innovation institutes for translational biology, we'd love your thoughts on innovation institutes in academia and how they've helped yourself and others on entrepreneurial journeys. Well, I think the VIS Institute's a unique place. It's a place where translation and um, commercialization is a revered, is looked for, which is not like many academic institutes. That's why it's a little bit separate. Nevertheless, it still supports uh, fundamental science. For me, the, the beauty of it is that um, I, I'm a physicist. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a biologist. And I'm not really somebody who knows about real translation when it comes to biotech, particularly when it comes to, say, human health and things like that. And so by going to the VIS, I can work with people who know much more about that than I do. And I can learn from them what the needs are. I can uh, get questions answered and I can collaborate with them to try and help me translate things. I think that they do a wonderful job of leading to commercialization. So there's a lot of things that they do that help you. But, you know, and, and, and they do a wonderful job with that. And, and kudos to them for doing it. Personally, I think we have to be able to do this elsewhere as well. But certainly doing it through the VIS makes makes everything much easier. And I see my colleagues who are there as well find a much easier time to commercialize things, uh, particularly in the biotech space. I think that's a perfect, uh, perfect tie-in as we think about academic culture and how it might evolve over the next few decades. Even today, we're seeing more and more spin-outs coming from academia. Do you think academic culture will continue to travel in that, in that direction? And if so, or if not, do you think there's something missing from academic entrepreneurship that will really promote that sort of ecosystem and drive? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's going to continue to evolve. I think that, first of all, it has to evolve in that direction because, you know, we're training, we're, we're pretty successful, I think, in universities and training technical people, particularly, well, in biology, we're very successful in, in the science and engineering, we're, we're somewhat successful. I think we still need more, but uh, not everybody should or will work in universities. So there has to be places that they can go. And the real job creation 
industry or job creation engine is startup companies. So I think we have to continue to create startup companies and watch them grow into middle, mid-scale companies. That's where the real jobs are. And so I think that we have to do that. For me, I do that not just because I want to have an impact and make things sustainable, but I also want to provide jobs for the people I train. And so I, my, my own personal motto is that I should create more jobs than the people I train. And I train a lot of people, but I've, I'm proud of the fact that I've created even more jobs through startup companies. And what I've seen, I mean, I live in Boston, which is really a center for biotech startups these days. And I'd say the last two or three years in particular, I've seen it, there's a real a sea change in the way students perceive things. And they uh, now the really best students often don't want to go to academia. They want to go and do startup companies or go and join startup companies. I think that's great. I think that's wonderful. I think it's a real opportunity. I, I, when I graduated, I didn't want to go to academia. I went to a company as well. I went to the kind of companies that were available then, these large industrial labs. But had there been startup companies, I would certainly have gone to a startup company. So I think the students are driving that. I think the faculty recognize the importance, the need. I, I see more and more faculty get interested in this. So I think it's changing. I think it's becoming more positive. I think that we need to recognize that. Uh, we need to recognize that and how we value people, how we evaluate people. It should be part of, as we evaluate faculty the fact that they do entrepreneurship should be something that's valued and included in their, in their performance uh, view. I see that all coming. That's a wonderful perspective and something I think we all hope will continue to be the case. Diving back more into your work, just a few quick rapid fire questions in the space of microfluidics. So first, if you could wave a magic wand, what is the single biggest linchpin holding back microfluidics that you'd love to unlock in the field? Well, I think the biggest linchpin is making it, democratizing it, making it easier to use so everybody can use it. It's not something I work on. Uh, so the thing that I want to do, something if I could achieve, I would like to make droplets with more or less permeable, more impermeable walls so I could really trap everything in the drops. Right now, there's problems with uh, things leaking out of the drops. I'd like to solve that problem. That's a somewhat detailed problem, but that would make a big difference in, in what I do. And I think more generally, uh, what will make a big difference is to make it much easier for everybody to use. Continuing in that same vein and now switching to application, what is one application that microfluidics has not yet touched that you'd love to see tackled? Yeah, well, I think that you know, I think uh, people are doing this. Uh, there's a, a really brilliant person, Klaus Jensen at uh, MIT, who, who is trying to make drugs, you know, very complicated drugs, but doing it through microfluidics to enable him to have a distributed manufacturing process. And I think that's a really important thing, to have distributed manufacturing so that you can make things on a small scale, but do it on an as-needed basis. And again, have it completely distributed. I think another thing is that still, there's still this tremendous potential to make very inexpensive devices to bring diagnostic systems to uh, really resource poor uh, locations. Again, uh, my brilliant colleague, George Whiteside, has this uh, theme of using paper for microfluidics. And he says, well, that's so cheap, you can do it. But if you really go through the numbers, it's not that much cheaper 
and often not nearly as good as a mass-produced microfluidic chip. So whether it's paper or other kinds of technologies, I really would like to see the very low-cost microfluidics produced to bring screening and diagnostics really to everybody, to make it available to, to all of the world's health. An avenue and, and a point that I think is often not sufficiently considered. How do you ensure that technologies are equally accessible? Strong agreement there. And I love that that's been a, a central theme throughout your message thus far. Maybe one final question on this front. What do you think are some of the most common misconceptions in your field? That they're hard. It's hard to do. It doesn't, it's not scalable, that you can't make uh, real materials and that it's too difficult to, to use for experiments. It's just not the recognition that it's as flexible and as convenient and as accessible as it really is. And we'll hope to see that continuing more. But for now, to carry on with the topic of academic entrepreneurship, passing it back to Drew. Thanks, Chris. Dave, as you mentioned, your lab studies both synthetic and biological materials with interests ranging from fundamental physics to technological applications and from basic materials questions to specific biological problems. With this comes many different backgrounds to attack problems in materials, physics, and, and, and biology as a whole. I mean, with that said, how do you think about leading interdisciplinary teams in research? Well, my view, again, is I want to have impact. And one way of having impact is to do something new, something that nobody else has done, but that's really important. And if I work in pure physics, there's so much done in pure physics that to do something new is really difficult. I really have to go through all the details and everything that's known and work really hard and find it. The same thing with uh, chemistry, the same thing with biology. But if you go to the intersection of two fields, if you combine different fields together, then it's much easier to find new areas where there's a new intersection, where two... the the two fields have never been combined in the same way. And so I do this purely for a way of trying to make my life easier and for me to be more exciting. I, I think I can have more impact by finding new things. I'm going to find new things most easily at the intersection of fields. I also think that that's where really qualitatively new re research is going to come. And I think that's the kind of thing that we should do. So I think interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary work, which is what I call it now, is absolutely essential. And so it's not hard to lead a lab doing that because that's the kind of research that I actually think is is the most important research. Uh, it's amazing to, uh, I mean, your transparency and your, your openness about the value of interdisciplinary labs. And as this is becoming more apparent, the, the value add in the current academic cycle and function in just today's standards, Really, I mean, what advice would you give to researchers trying to develop an interdisciplinary approach to research within their own labs? Yeah. So, I mean, now we're talking about academic labs. I mean, there's a, there is a real problem with doing multidisciplinary work in academia. And that is, that I think it's more difficult to get funding that way because most people are a single discipline. They work on one discipline or another discipline. And so if you have multidisciplinary work, you need people who are able and willing and capable of evaluating things with lots of different perspectives. And that's more difficult. It's less done. So it's actually more difficult, I think, to get funding that way. 
there obviously there's some brilliant people, my colleague George Whitesides, uh, Steve Quake. These people are 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 never have problems getting funding, but it's more difficult. So the advice I would give to somebody who's doing it is that don't be afraid, just do it, and don't get trapped by doing what you think that the standard thing is, which is often not to do multidisciplinary work, but to really try and do it. Uh, of course, and Dave, it's been a pleasure discussing the future of your research through the White's Lab, uh, among other forms of of your research and approaches through interdisciplinary approaches. I would love to continue the conversation and take some time to discuss your entrepreneurial journey. In addition to your pioneering work in soft materials, you've been a prolific academic entrepreneur, co-founding numerous companies, including Radiance Technologies, NuBio, Capsum, as we discussed earlier, Hi-Fi Bio, BioMillennia, OneCell Bio, SphereBio, NextGen Forensic Sciences, TCRX, Drag and Drop In, Hunter Bio, among many others. As, as a serial academic entrepreneur, what is your process for translating technologies? Maybe we could start there. Well, I mean, I always say, when, if somebody asks me, should we start a company? I say, don't think too much about it. Just do it. You just have to try it. Many of the companies that you mentioned, we tried and they failed. They're no longer there. That doesn't bother me. If you, don't, if you succeed every, every time, you'll be doing boring things. You have to take risks and you have to be, un, you have to be totally willing to fail. And you know, that's the beautiful beauty, beauty of our culture in the United States is that we can fail and get right back up and try again. I think that's very important for, for startups. And the other thing is that whenever I get to a point where I see or I have a sense there's a really a potential impact, but the technology to develop that impact is more than it takes a team of engineers. That's not suitable for an academic lab. That's when I try to spin it off into a company because it needs a, a larger team of engineers to do the work. Of course. And as we're talking about your own dynamics within your own lab, advising folks and individuals on starting companies, th this in, in some cases, in a lot of cases, develops a, a culture around entrepreneurship. Within your own lab specifically, if you think this has developed an entrepreneurial culture, I, I'd love to ask a question to yourself specifically. How, how do you, as a PI, foster a culture of entrepreneurship within your lab? What I do is just make it clear that that's an acceptable and enjoyable and valid way of pursuing a career and pursuing science and pursuing technology and, and having impact. And I think that does, it, it, it takes away the basic fear, but I found now that the success and the excitement uh, in the surrounding uh, area for startup companies is also really important and really valuable. And so now people in my lab have gone off and done little internships for a few months at, at startup companies, and they come back all fired up and they want to do go and work for a startup company. So it's, a, it's a, doing little things. I, I bring in former lab members who've been successful in startup companies or different kinds of careers. I bring them in to give talks at a group meeting. I just generally make make it clear that this is a an enjoyable and successful way of uh, of pursuing a career. Just by comparison, I remember when I graduated, which was a long, long, long time ago. Then uh, doing industrial physics was sort of viewed a little bit dirty. It wasn't you know, people say, "Oh, we have to do pure physics, basic physics." 
uh, you know, I, I, I have a different perspective than, than, than people did in my, in, in when I was a student. Now I say you have to, I don't care whether you do basic physics or applied physics. I care whether you do good physics or bad physics, impactful physics or not impactful physics. And so I think having an impact, you can still do that through entrepreneurship. And I just make that really clear to the people in my group. Of course. And really, as you said, many, the culture is changing for sure. As you said, many top young scientists are seeking to move into startups or develop companies of their own. Just from your just from your perspective as a serial entrepreneur, what advice would you give to rising star professors or young scientists looking to entrepreneurialize their own labs? Just do it. Very simple. Fair enough. Well-spoken words and uh, uh, enough said on, on that front for sure. One, one quick thing. I just want to pass it over to Chris here so that we can wrap up. Chris, do you want to take it away for our closing session wrap up? Happy to, Drew. So, David, before we come to a close, a few final questions just to wrap things up. One question we love to ask our guests comes from Nobel laureate Dennis Gabor, who said, the future cannot be predicted, but the future can be invented. Can you share with us what inventing the future means to you? Well, to me, every time I'm creative, I'm inventing something. I'm inventing something new. And that's the only thing I do. And, you know, my goal... My goal in life, my goal in science, the way I structure my career is always to do things that are as new as possible. I don't want to do things that other people have done. I always would rather be the first to do something rather than somebody who does it the best. Because if you're the first, people will follow you. If you're the best, you clean up the field. and Nobody will follow you. I want to have an impact. I want other people to do what I do. So that's what, to me, uh, inventing the future means. I love that pioneering a new path and opening it up for others. So continuing in that vein, then, as we think about charting new courses, what would you characterize as the grand challenges facing the life sciences? As I told you, I'm a physicist. And so I want to see, for me, I want to see whether there are some unifying themes, much more unifying than there are. So I could learn how to be a successful life science life science scientist without having to learn, learn as much detail as all my students know. That would be a real challenge to me. That would be a grand challenge. Uh, the, the, the next level challenge would be, again, I think I, it's very important that we're, we're making enormous advances in uh, improving human health by what we know in life sciences. I want to make sure that we improve everybody's health, not just the wealthiest not just uh, the people around us. I'd, I'd like to democratize everything we do. And as we think about that democratization, do you have any sense of what biotech in 2050 might look like? No. I mean, I, have, I don't have a sense of what it's going to look like next year. I mean, that's not true. I, you know, it's going to look like, the simil- like what we're doing now. I think, realistically, I, I hope in, in, by 2050, that'll be long after I'm dead. So I, I won't be I won't be around to to test my prediction. But I hope that we'll have made enormous advances in everything. We'll have harnessed all the developments that we've used both in in biology and technology and knowledge to make things more accessible, to make progress faster, 
and to make progress deeper so that we can have a bigger impact on human health. One of the potentially challenges, but also advantages of being first is that, as you've mentioned earlier, you inspire others to follow. So having been an inspiration so many for so many of the listeners in our audience, we'd love to flip it around and ask, who inspires you and why? Well, I keep coming back to my colleague, George Whitesides. He inspires me. What I like about George is he does really impactful work. And every few years, he does something new. He's, you know, in my mind, he's, he's one of the most impactful scientists in the world, but he's impacted so many areas of science that, you know, he, he may not, he, he doesn't win the big prizes because he's he done so much. He's done too much. And uh, I really respect him for that reason. And so he's been one of my real heroes. In the same line, uh, Steve Quake is one of my real heroes in terms of uh, microfluidics. And I tend to like people who are like that, who do a lot of different things and change the way we think about things in many different ways. Just to wrap things off quickly, how can our listeners learn more about your work? Two ways. You can look at our website. Our website's usually about six months out of date. So it tells us what we've done up to six months ago. And you can contact me. I'm happy to answer any questions if somebody wants to contact me. Thank you, Dave, for an absolutely fantastic episode. We are very grateful for your time and really look forward to having you back on the show again soon. Thanks again. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.